Steve Price. Steve Price. Hey, Steve. Hey. Shock Jock, Steve Price. I don't like Shock Jock, by the way. I think um, Price is 100% right. Well, Steve joins us now. As a young barrister, John Burns struck the jackpot, winning $800,000 first prize in Lotto. A decade later, Burnzo hit the jackpot again, teaming up on Melbourne's 3AW with Ross Stevenson and spending 20 years at the top of the Melbourne Breakfast Radio Mountain. Stepping down while on top, he reflects on a most unlikely media career that sees him go out as a legend. All I want to say is that uh, when I was unable to finish that sentence previously, I've been the luckiest bloke in the world to be put on air with the best broadcaster in the world. Absolute legend. Um, what's the measurement from here to a bottle of champagne? Is it about 20, 21 steps, is it? Something like that. Um, it's been amazing, Bernzo. Let's go and have a drink. John Burns and I have known each other, I guess, now for around 30 years. We uh, together toasted in the, the new millennium back on New Year's Eve in 1999. We worked together at radio for more than 12 years before I moved to Sydney. And John went on to carve out one of the most successful breakfast radio careers in Australian history, topping the radio ratings, which come out eight times a year, every year for 20 years in Melbourne on 3AW. Also, in a former life, he was a lawyer, barrister, uh, a famous restaurant reviewer, and John Burns is our guest on this edition of On the Record. Burnzo, welcome. Good morning, and uh, thank you for that. That was a very, very enlightening introduction. Hey. I, uh, you, you said things that I didn't even know about myself. That you were so successful, uh, I think you're being a little shy. Um, yeah. You finished your most recent job at the end of July at the age of – 75 in the week of your yeah. birthday. How That's right. blessed are you to have worked into your mid-70s, do you think? Well, it's not something that uh, I planned or something I thought would happen, but um, being uh, having been a barrister, uh, which means basically you're self-employed, and uh, getting onto radio, which is uh, a, a different sort of industry, there's no retirement date, if you know what I mean. I was planning to uh, just continue as a barrister, like a lot of my contemporaries are doing now, until I fell over. <laughs> and uh, having got the job on radio, I was planning to uh, do that too until I fell over. Well, I haven't fallen over. And, um, you know, at 75, I still don't think I'm old. I mean, but apart from the odd twinge in my back, my health is perfect. So, and I think my brain's working. But it has been a long career. 75, if you look, you know, you don't hang up your shingle just because of numbers. Well, you might notice I didn't, I didn't say or use the word retired. I actually said you finished, yeah. finished your latest job. I mean, I don't think retirement is mandatory, is it? No, no, it's not. And uh, it's not like the days when the the old age pension automatically kicked in at 65 because people were doing manual work and their life expectancy was a lot less than it is these days. I think the life expectancy when they brought in the retirement age of 65 was about uh, 70, 72, something like that for a male. And uh, now it's well into the 80s. And that, that takes into account accidents as well. In the law, is there a mandatory retirement age for judges? Yeah, yeah. I, I used to, well, it was 70 uh, in uh, the County Court and Supreme Court of Victoria and um, 
Uh, I don't know what the High Court was. I think the High Court's different. But, uh, yeah, I think there is a mandatory retirement age, which which is absolutely ridiculous because a 70-year-old judge who is still relatively, in my view, young has got something like 50 years legal experience to call on. Um, you know, and a lot of law firms, for example, kick out their partners when they're 65 and bring in all these young guns who uh, are full of book learning and no experience. So, uh, And in contrast, in, in the United States, if, I, if I'm right, their Supreme Court, they've still got judges on the Supreme Court bench of the United States, highest court in the land there in their 80s. Oh, I think they're appointed for life. And, they, you know, the idea behind that would be that they're not swayed by uh, the possibility of, of uh, you know, being kicked off at 70 or something of that nature. But um, I don't know what the philosophy behind it is, but the philosophy of a lot of things in America and the Constitution is just incomprehensible. Not many 75-year-olds are still working, getting up at, out of bed at 4 o'clock in the morning. I've done breakfast radio at various times, filled, mm. it, filled in many, many times over the years, nearly killed me. It yeah. seemed to have the opposite effect on you. Yeah, well, it did. It did. I mean, I, I didn't find getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning a problem. Uh, and, and for 20 years, I was ready to go to bed at 8 do a little bit of reading, get me eight hours sleep, get up at four in the morning and uh, just bang, you know, it, uh, you, you get used to it. You can get used to anything really and uh, when people, you know, the questions I got asked over 20 years were what time do you go to bed, what time do you get up and do you miss the law? Uh, and, then, and I used to just get up and say but at the beginning of a, let's say I was invited to do a, a speech or a talk, I'd get up and say, right, eight, four, no. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody goes, what's that mean? <laughs> and it'd be, I go to bed at eight, I get up at four, and I don't miss the law. The thing about the law is it's a very, without knowing it, it is an extremely stressful business. Uh, because every day, this is a being, this is not a solicitor, for example, this is a barrister. Every day is a confrontation. So you're confronted by your opponent, you're confronted by a judge, you're confronted by the taxation commissioner. And you're confronted by a client. Every one of them's a blue. There's been lots of tributes to you, obviously, over the last couple of weeks. So let's go back. I want to talk about your law career. How did you get to become a lawyer? Because it's a profession where you need to have extremely high marks in your final year at, at high school. And then some uh, people get to go and study law at various law schools around the country. How did you get to get in? Did you have a really high uh, HSC mark, did you? No, I had a very, very, I had the, the basic four passes in four subjects. So uh, it was absolutely bugger all. But then um, I studied a little bit of law part-time at uh, what they then called the downtown law school, which was a way of people who couldn't get into university studying law whilst they were working in a law office. So it was, a, it was called an article clerk's course. But what attracted you to the law? Why did you want to go into the law? I've got no idea. I mean, some of us want to become car salesmen or, you know, plumbers or electricians or, you know, train drivers. Well, did you wake up one day and go, I want to be a lawyer? No, I couldn't do anything else because in matric, I didn't do mathematics or a language, matric being year 12. Uh, So the only thing that was open to anybody who did humanities was arts or 
commerce or law. And I thought, oh, well, you know, law was probably the one that appealed to me most. But then after this little bit of part-time study, I think I did two subjects in that year, uh, Monash University opened a law school. And I just applied for that, not thinking I'd get in, and got a knockback. And then about two weeks after the year started, I got a letter saying, look, the dean has decided to uh, let 50 more people come uh, and we'll start off the year with not 100 but 150. So I was part of that 50 um, alongside a bloke I'd never met before but who's become a, a, you know, a long-time best mate, bloke called John Harvey, who eventually left the law and became a, an accountant and running Price Waterhouse. But um, we got in. So what we year are we that, talking about there? 64. Okay. So Monash University would have been a, a hotbed of protest and long hair and group sex yeah. and lots of drinking and smoking? Yeah, it was. Um, there was lots of, it, was, it was amazing. People were allowed to smoke in the library. They, the, the main <laughs> library had ashtrays on all the desks. <laughs> but, uh, yes, it was a bit of a hotbed of radicals in those days, fired up by a, the editor of the university magazine, who was a bloke called Pete Steedman, who everybody knows. Leather jacket uh, wearing Pete Steedman. That's right. Now, when we started, the 150 students, the dean said, look to your left, look to your right, only one out of the the three of you will finish the course. Well, in fact, it was worse than that. 25 of us finished the course out of the first 150. So, uh, What got you through? What what got you past that other, whatever it is, 170 or 120? Well, I I, I was not... I was not a student at school at all because I hated it. But when uh, I got to university, I, I suddenly got interested in learning, and it was and I was fascinated by uh, learning because it was interesting and it was made interesting. And you were told, "Look, if you don't want to try, don't bother. You, you know, you'll fail and you'll be out. It's up to you." And uh, you know, I loved the, the study of British and Australian history, which we had to do and various other subjects that weren't law-related. But uh, and, and I, because I enjoyed it, it was easy. Did you also thrive in that collegiate atmosphere because you, you love talking to people and mixing with others? So to go to yeah. university, presumably you're surrounded by uh, people you like spending time with. Yes, well, that's true. And uh, there were some unusual people there that I became very friendly with who I hadn't met before. For example, girls. <laughs> and uh, Jewish people who became friends of mine. See, I'd never, I'd never met because I went to a Catholic all boys school. I'd never met any girls, and I'd never met any Jewish people. And uh, you know, they all became my friends, and it was uh, that was enlightening and interesting. So, did you but, always uh, then, uh, once you got through there, did you always want to be a barrister, not a solicitor? Did you want to be someone who performed uh, in court as? As a, as a barrister, I mean, I'm I'm sort of you know coming at this from never having worked uh, as a lawyer clearly, but I've covered plenty of court cases. Barristers yeah. always seem to be, you know, these sort of very con- self confident, on their feet, smart as a whip uh, type personalities. Is that what you wanted to be? Did you say, oh well, look, you know, I don't want to be a boring well, solicitor. I want to do something a bit more fun. Yeah, well, it, it was it came from a different angle. You see. I was three years a solicitor, and it just didn't suit me sitting in an office, being a back, you know, a backroom boy, 
preparing cases and giving handing them off to barristers to do. Uh, and I found it incredibly boring and, uh, you know, unenlightening and all the rest of it. And then my, when I got married, my wife, whose sister was married to a barrister, kept pressing me to leave the solicitor's office and go and be a barrister. So that was the main incentive, I think, was uh, was my wife's encouragement. Was and, it seen um, as being more lucrative? Yeah, I, well, uh, I don't think that was the motivation because uh, I knew that uh, a lot of the partners in the law firm I was in were making a lot of money, you know, really, really seriously big money uh, because they had other people working for them, employees. But uh, when you're a barrister, you're on your own and uh, you're only as good as your, your next day in court as your next fee. So you put your hand up, say, I want to be a courtroom lawyer. What's yeah. the process of that? I mean, do you – well, you've what got do you have to, to do? You've got your qualifications, right? You've been admitted to practice as a barrister and solicitor. So what you do is you apply to the Bar Council to join the role of barristers. And, uh, a little bit like get, drive, joining a private men's club. Um, not really. I mean, it's open to everybody. <laughs> you want to take the risk, and you take the risk of not getting any work and starving. But I was fortunate enough to get onto a clerk's list where there was lots of floating work so that you got briefs from solicitors who didn't know you, but they knew the clerk. So they'd say to him, who have you got? who can do a motor accident case in Frankston Magistrates Court tomorrow. And you, and the clerk would say, well, I've got John Byrne. He's available. And the solicitor would say, well, who's he? And your clerk would say, well, you know, he's pretty smart and uh, he'll do the job. Can you so, remember or is it impossible to remember what some of your first cases were? I remember one or two of them, yeah. yeah. Like? Yeah. Uh, Oh, you know, most in those days there was a lot of work called crash and bash, which was uh, motor accident recovery cases in the magistrates' court for damage to motor vehicles. That that doesn't really that's not much of an industry these days, I don't think. And there were lots of point oh five cases, and uh, lots of speeding cases, and lots of what what would then maintenance cases before the Family Law Act came in, where. Uh, wives were suing husbands for maintenance. How do you argue someone to get someone off a, uh, a, a drink driving or a speeding case? Oh, gee, well, that's ancient history now, of course. But uh, back then, was, though, uh, how did you do it? What were the excuses? Back then, look, it was pretty hard because magistrates in those days were not lawyers; they were clerks of court who'd been brought up in the, in the system, which was always a magistrate's court attached to a police station. So the magistrates were always very, very pro-police. So if it came to a dispute where credibility was an issue, the magistrate would never disbelieve a policeman because he had to live with them. So they were in the office next door. He couldn't say, I don't, I, you know, I don't. I don't believe this policeman's evidence because uh, uh, he's got to live with him. Plus, they had a resentment against lawyers, of course, because uh, in those days, magistrates weren't lawyers. So did you ever get anyone off a drink driving or a speeding case? Yeah. Yeah, I do remember a a very 
very uh, successful 0.05 case uh, many years ago. I mean, these defences aren't open now, but you could call witnesses to say that the person who uh, had the breathalyzer reading uh, uh, could not have had that reading because he brought along half a dozen mates to say that he only had one beer. And then you'd call an expert to say uh, <laughs> one beer is, you know, wouldn't get you that reading. So you were in effect so, arguing that the, the the machinery used to take the test was faulty. Must have been faulty, yeah, yeah. Like, but, a, like I mean, a speed radar, you could argue that it wasn't working that day properly. Yes, yes, that's right. Um, th- th- those arguments were available then, but they're not anymore because the legislation simply says now if the machine says you're over 0.05, that is it, full stop. Were you a good lawyer? Uh, yes, but a, uh, let me let me put it this way: yes, but a lazy one. Because you could be lazy. You're not a lazy person by nature. Yes, I am. Are you? Yes, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I wasn't as 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 uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Ambitious. No, oh, well, I wasn't all that ambitious. I didn't ever want to, for example, be a judge, but. Uh, Oh, look! I, I I I could do it. If, I could do the work if I had to. You know, I had to be forced into doing it. But if, and then I was, yeah, I was. I think I was pretty good. But uh, basically, I always sought the easy way out and tried to settle cases rather than fight them. You talk about <coughs> workers' compensation law and how the Act changed in 1992, and that really brought to a grinding halt workers' compensation law work, which was quite lucrative, that was changed yeah. under a Labor government, wasn't it? Uh, yes, it was. Uh, John Kane? That's right. It was changed under John Kane. What changed? Uh, I, think, I think it was 92. Well, they abolished the workers' compensation board and uh, started up a new system where, uh, oh, look, at, look, it's so long ago now, I can't remember exactly, but they, they did change the system to try and force the old system where it was more based on law and the practice of law than an administrative tribunal type of thing. So they brought in the Accident Compensation Tribunal, appointed about 20 judges uh, to sit on their own and uh, mainly try to get get workers rehabilitated and back to work rather than uh, pay them money and settle them up and all the rest of it. So after that, um, you had to scratch around to, to try and make a decent income. You ended up being a, a travelling prosecutor on the road. Was that good fun? Yeah, yeah that was. Uh, um, when uh, when Jeff Kennett sacked all those judges that Kane had appointed, uh, there was a real hiatus of no work at all. And um, I... I think McClark recommended me to the Director of Public Prosecution Solicitors to uh, do a trial in Hamilton, and uh, we won that. And then uh, I started getting work from the Director of Public Prosecutions to do prosecution work on circuit as a barrister, as an independent barrister working for the government. And uh, I did that for for many years, and then uh, I started getting civil work for the Victorian Work Cover Authority, which was civil jury trials for personal injury work. And so at the finish, 
before I left the law, I was doing 50-50 criminal prosecutions and civil jury work for the defendants, which was the government, basically. So I was working for the government for both um, instrumentality. Sounds very like very dry work. You you uh, had a bit of fun with it, though. You ended up uh, famously oh. becoming a, a lawyer who went to lunch a lot. Was that yeah. during that period? No, it was the earlier period, the, um, the period uh, basically during the workers' compensation years from about 1980 to about 1992. So how do you go to, you go to lunch? You don't go back to court, <laughs> presumably. No. Oh, God, no. No, the idea was to settle cases before lunch <laughs> uh, and then head off to lunch. So the, the real incentive was to, uh, to get out of the joint by certainly by 1 o'clock. And a lot of those judges who were sitting at that time were more than happy to accommodate you. Were they at lunch? They weren't at lunch. They were either at the races or... Playing golf? Playing golf or something like that, yeah. What were those lunches like? Oh, look, it was was Christmas all over again every day, you know. I mean, there were so many lovely restaurants around town that... uh, in those days that you could go to. But, I mean, the most popular, of course, with us, all of us was the flower drum. But there was fannies uh, and uh, oh, places that no longer exist, which we used to go to, which we thought were, you know, great fun. What but, would uh, you, uh, constitute you, you a long to, lunch? How many hours? <clears throat> well, you had to be back uh, You had to be back in your chambers, which is your office, by about half past four in order to pick up the work for the next day. Because this is the day before mobile phones. Remember? Yes, of course. Uh, so you had, to, you had to go back to your, your office and see what sort of work you had for the next day, which either flowed in that afternoon or you'd wait around lap past five until, um, you know, people... Another barrister might have three briefs for the next day, but he might be part heard that day in court and he had to hand them back and he wouldn't be handing them back till you know, he got home from court at up past four or five o'clock. Flower Drum and Fanny, as you mentioned, two restaurants, very expensive. I mean, it wouldn't have been cheap to go to the Flower Drum every day. No, it wasn't. But uh, we were making plenty of money in those days. and uh, Cash on the table, pay the bill? At the restaurant? Mm. Oh, no, it was all plastic. Yes. Big tips? Bunged on the plastic, big tips, and of course, uh, that was before the Keating No Eating um, rules, where you could claim your lunches as entertainment. And you were self-employed, and so you were entertaining uh, colleagues who you worked with. Exactly. No, you were entertaining uh, solicitors who were giving you the work. So, in the middle of all of this, at some stage, you're married. You've got young children. And yeah. uh, you win the lottery. When did that happen? 1989. So 89, yeah. that's in the middle of all of this workers' compo work, so you're doing pretty well financially anyway. How much money did yeah. you win in the lottery? Oh, 800 grand or something. $800,000 in 19, what, 89? 89. That was a it lot was of a, money. Yeah, it was. It was a lot of money. Um Let's see what happened. I went and got some advice, uh, some financial advice, and the first thing was get rid of the mortgage 
which was a lot of money. That was 150 grand. Uh, to um, pay your outstanding tax bill, that was about 140. Yes. Uh, that carved out a fair slice of the money. It certainly did. But that was the yeah, they said that was the problem that yeah, we had as barristers in those days. We were very irresponsible with our money and uh, and, and with our tax liability. You see that the tax system then was only odious because once you become successful, your income rises dramatically. And in those days, the marginal tax rate was sixty cents in the dollar. And they had a thing called provisional tax. Mm. So if in one year your income went up from, say, 35000 to a hundred, Yes. Your tax bill was whatever it was. Let's say it was out of that hundred at 60 cents, 60000 Well, you've got to pay next year's as well. Yeah. So you're behind the eight ball. Yeah, uh, right. There's just no way out. Uh, if you have a sudden a period of success, so you get into real serious tax trouble. You don't pay tax on a, on a lottery win, do you? So you, that was eight hundred thousand no. tax free. Yeah. Can you remember yeah. where you were when you heard you'd won? How'd you find out? I had the I had the ticket in my wallet, which I'd just bought on a whim, walking down. Um, Queen Street one day, and uh, I'd been away on circuit, and I came back, and I uh, on the Friday, and I went up to the Essendon Club, which is the barristers' bar, and uh, said to the bloke behind the chamber, "Have you got yesterday's paper? I just want to see what the uh, Lotto results were." And the worst thing I could do was say, "Shit, I've got seven, I've got six numbers here," and of course, all the blokes who were there were all over me like a rash, you know, and it was all around the traps the next day and uh, every bastard I met said, you know, are you the bloke who won tats? And, uh, you know. and of course, uh, the, the, there was a fair bit of animosity too. You know, a lot of people said it couldn't happen to a nicer bloke. A lot of people said you're an absolute bastard. How old were your children when you won lottery? Well, I remember the youngest one was uh, eight. So you've got three so young sons, um, yeah. and that win really did do a lot for your family, clearly, because you then were able to privately educate all three of those boys, which maybe you wouldn't have been able to do if you hadn't won that money? Oh, uh, no. Well, um, uh, let's see. No, the three of them were at private school. Or well, no, well, the youngest, the eight-year-old wasn't, but uh, the other two were at private school, uh, and that was that was fairly expensive, but uh, you know, as it as it turned out, it was a, a windfall. They assured that the three of them would uh, finish at private school and comfortably, if you know what I mean. So you pay off your mortgage, you pay off your tax bill, and then uh, the sort of personality that John Burns is. We're talking to John Burns for on the record. You decide to enjoy the rest of that money. You buy yourself a holiday house, a Saab convertible, and go skiing in Aspen. Yeah. Yes, we did that. I did Good that. on you. <laughs> the only trouble is that uh, when things got a bit tough in 1993, because remember, I'm out of work that year because of Kenneth, and I've got two kids still at uh, private school, I had to sell Portsea, yes. the holiday house. 
I lost a hundred thousand on that. <laughs> I'm not and, laughing uh, out of any enjoyment. I'm just contemplating yeah. what it must have been like. Yeah, Tough. so I lost uh, I lost out on that because 1993 was a bad year. I mean, the market had just uh, nosedived absolutely, and uh, so I, I sold that and uh, lost out on that. But the, the the best thing I did was buy the house I'm currently in, and uh, well, you know I've been here for 30 years and uh, still enjoying living where I am. Radio uh, intervenes uh, a little bit earlier than that. You get invited by your long-term radio uh, colleague, Ross Stevenson, to go and appear on Triple R on a program called Lawyers, Guns and Money. Now, if I remember correctly, did Lawyers, Guns and Money come on before the Could Have Been Champions on Triple R or after? Uh, look, I can't remember exactly, but I think I think it would have been uh, – when was it now? I reckon it was before, and then it rolled into could have been champions after that. Yeah, you could be right. But uh, there was also Punter the Punter. Yes. And there was some other program on that uh, they started off with lawyers, guns and money as a sort of a a gap, a a buffer between these two programs where there was a bit of apparently a little bit of animosity. But, um, yeah, but it was a cult program in 1990. Oh, when was it? 1988. 1988, yes. And yeah, April, uh, late 1888. And it was uh, a, a birthplace of a, a lot of very talented people, you included, but it would have been yeah. a broken down old dump, wouldn't it? Out in Was it still out in Collingwood in those days? It was out in Fitzroy. Yeah. Did you have to go and, there? Uh, yeah, I had to go there, and it was uh, sort of a, 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 I don't know, a converted warehouse. It was weird, but, you know, they used to get Bob Hawke and uh, Andrew Peacock in, and all sorts of people for interviews. But they got me in for the interview, and uh, then w- when they went commercial through 3AK, which is owned by Channel 9, ironically enough, in 19... Uh, what, what year was that? 1989. Ross had this brilliant idea of uh, getting regular spots um, from you know regular people uh, to talk about things such as real estate, finance, sport, and food. And he said, we want you to come on as Sir Lancelot every Saturday morning at up past uh, 11, up to 12 o'clock to talk about restaurants. So that was a once-a-week gig every Saturday, which was uh, the start of it all. Of course, then I went to 3AW and it was every Friday. Well, I hired Ross um, Stevenson and Dean Banks and Dennis Donoghue in, at the beginning of 1990. Um, yeah, and put them on the on the breakfast show on 3AW, which was a fairly brave thing to do, to hire a, a former community radio trio, although Dean wasn't ever at Triple R. Uh, those no, guys in those joke. days were in their you know mid early to mid-30s, and we were putting them yeah. on a radio station that was appealing to people over the age of 55, and yeah. it clicked. Uh, the, well, we had a few hiccups along the way, but it worked, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, Absolutely. Uh, absolutely, and it sort of still had, even though it was on pure commercial radio, it still had that little feeling of cult sort of interest about it, Do you know what I mean? People sort of felt privileged to be able to listen to this uh, almost a private conversation between people. Um, that's the way I felt about it. When, when You know, I used to listen to it during the week and think, you know, I'm sort of part of this. 
Well, you spent 10 uh, years as part of that before you got your yeah. uh, your permanent break. Yeah. Uh, how, can you recall uh, how it came about that you were asked to go there and work full-time with Ross when uh, suddenly at the end of 2000 uh, or at the end of 1999, uh, Dean Banks, who'd been very successful with Ross for nine years, walked out, unannounced, just walked out the door and took off. He was a mate of yours, but he just decided yeah. he had enough. Can you recall how the appointment for you came about? All I can remember is driving back from Lawn with my wife one day, uh, one Sunday afternoon, and there was talk back. I don't know whether you were on air or were interviewing, whatever, but someone rang up and said, uh, because there was much conjecture about who was going to take over as Dean Banks' successor. And... Uh, Apparently, you know, lots and lots of people wanted the job, and this bloke I remember rang up and said, "I've got the uh, I've got the answer for you, blokes. I reckon you should put Sir Lunch a lot on with him because uh, he's funny and he's got a good voice." And uh, it was you that interviewed this bloke. It was you that was on air doing drive, and you said, "I don't think he'd leave the bar." <laughs> and you nearly drove off the road, thinking, "Yes, yeah. I would." Yeah. Uh, anyway, then... Uh, well, I did some yeah, research well. on this. I rang Tony Bell the other day, who was running the radio station at the time. I said, just so uh, as John Burns's radio career at 3AW comes to a close, there's going to be uh, plenty of people putting their hands up and claiming that uh, the success of this show and who put it together and all of those things, Tony. Let's just remind each other of what actually happened and he said that I went to his office on the, the next floor above where the studios were and he said we had a whole bunch of names on a whiteboard and a whole bunch of qualities down one side and the names down the other and we worked our way down the names crossing people off as we went saying, oh, no, they don't have enough, they're not funny enough, don't have enough life experience, not enough empathy, not smart enough, haven't got a good voice and we ended up uh, with your name there and he said, right, oh, that's it, hire him. Uh, well, that's something I didn't know before, but anyway, uh, that's interesting. And uh, I'm glad he decided that. Yeah, I'll bet you are, because 20 years later, uh, there you go. That's That's been an extraordinary time. Do you remember how nervous yeah. you were when you started, first up? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I didn't know how to turn on a microphone. <laughs> uh, but it was a quick learning curve, I can tell you that. A very quick learning curve. What made it so successful? Oh, look, I, I just think it was a, uh, oh, a, a, just a two blokes who had a, a, a sort of a, a magic relationship with each other. That's what I reckon. <coughs> Complemented each other. I always described it as two blokes in a bar having a chat. I mean, I think that one of the th- uh, the things that Ross Stevenson brings to to that program is that. Uh, his brain is going at a thousand miles an hour. He has all yeah. of these these uh, rather unusual thoughts for uh, for a, a, a commercial radio breakfast program, and they pop out, and he just gets the audience and his co-host, which was you, to play along and have a bit of fun with it. I mean, I don't ever recall in that twenty years listening to that show, hearing anyone get aggro, anyone arguing, anyone shouting, anyone abusing a politician or uh, having a crack at the, a police commissioner or 
or having a, a you know an, a, a, a really strong editorial viewpoint about anything. And so it's completely different to every other AM talkback breakfast show that's ever been. Yeah, well, as Ross says, no one gets bashed up on our program and uh, we avoid politics and we avoid uh, nasty crimes, you know, mainly sex crimes. I so, think that's uh, true and that made it work. Look, you, you did a lot of travel together. How many Olympics? Every one since Sydney. So from so Athens on. Athens, Beijing, London, Rio, and sadly, not Tokyo. How much fun was oh, Ath- Athens? Athens was hilarious. Uh, what was that, 2004? That was just hilarious because Athens is Athens and Greeks are Greeks. And it was just so much material that was funny. Um, Beijing was more successful than we expected. Uh, London, of course, is London. And um, Rio was just exciting. How did you deal with this? A lot of the time differences when I worked them out would be you working at exactly the time of day you don't want to work. Well, that's true. Um, Let's see. We've done OBs in New York, which was fine because that was in the afternoon. Um, London, I think, was about, uh, oh, God, it was on. We were on at about nine till midnight. Um, (laughs) Beijing was ridiculous. That was, uh, you know, two o'clock in the morning till five. Uh, Rio wasn't too bad, as I recall. I can't quite now remember. Uh, I remember the 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 really exciting one was uh, South Africa for the World Cup soccer, uh, and Ross and I turn up to the studio to uh, start broadcasting, and it would have been late at night. I know it was pitch dark, and uh, our technical man said, um, "Listen." Uh, the studio's not working properly, come with me. And Ross and I went out and sat in the car park with a small machine between us and our earphones on running the program. And no one knew the difference. What made those broadcasts so successful was that you weren't there to, you know, broadcast the the 100 metres or uh, the final two seconds of a soccer game. You were there to give the audience back in Melbourne your massive breakfast radio audience, a glimpse at what life was like in those places, right? Yeah, yeah. That's why we had the uh, uh, this virtual competition, I suppose, called, let's say, Athens. Athens, city of, and then we'd make our observations about what was unusual about the city. Um, you know, city of ashtrays on every, every surface and, uh, you know, the... <laughs> And the the, the the smallest building in the world, the Quit Campaign headquarters in Athens, or the uh, the taxi directorate in Athens, you know, the smallest buildings in the world. Uh, all those little observations about places that are different. That's why it's sad that we can't go to Tokyo because I've been to Japan many, many times, as you know, and Ross has never been there. You so love- the Olympics in Tokyo would have been fabulous because of so many things to observe. Oh, yeah, it's an incredible city. We've, you and I have been there a few times together. You love travelling. I did hear you say, though, on your final broadcast that your favourite place in the world was Sicily. I know that to be not true, uh, that yeah. it, in fact, is London, so I don't know why you said that. Well, I was. Uh, it just came to me that, uh, you know, what's the, 
your favourite place. And I said, Catania in Sicily, because I had such lovely memories of it at that time. The thing about London is uh, that I've been there heaps of times and I've got a son who lives there, and it's a very good staging point. In, in spite of the fact that it's a great town itself, beautiful city itself, uh, it's a great staging point to go to lots and lots of places. I mean, you know, Krakow in Poland, for example, is, I've got fond memories of. Uh, what about yeah, Marrakesh in Morocco? How how fond are your memories of that? That would be the worst place I've ever been. <laughs> Why? <laughs> and everybody talks about it as if it's good. Well, where do I start? I, I, I suppose the worst thing about it was the cruelty to animals that you see. There are mangy cats everywhere walking all over the place into restaurants and everything else. Skinny donkeys. Um, Skinny donkeys that are being flogged within an inch of their lives with uh, sores all over them. Uh, the animals that are trained to entertain you in the in the main square, like monkeys and all that, um, and the snake charmers and all that sort of stuff. You know, they're, they're, the, the snakes have all had their teeth pulled out and they're all doped up on drugs. Uh, the monkeys are probably rabid, and these people throw them at you so that they can, you know, stop you as a tourist. Um, dreadful place, and uh, they're, they're, you know, there are restaurants there that serve all right sort of food, but they're not licensed. And you got trapped there. Yeah, yeah. There was a muck up with our flight out, and we had to get a taxi from Marrakesh to Casablanca which is about three hours through the desert, to get on a plane to go to Belgium to get back to London. Oh, it was an absolute disaster. Describe your perfect day in London. Oh, um, let's see. The perfect day in London would be to get the tube to Green Park Station, cross the road where the Ritz Hotel is, go down to German Street and uh, wander down there and uh, which is just full of fabulous shops, mainly menswear stores, and then go up Burlington Arcade, which is on the other side of Piccadilly, which is just a beautiful arcade full of most exquisite shops, and then walk up Savile Row uh, and look in the tailor shops there, and then come back and go to lunch uh, in Chelsea, at a pub called the Enterprise and then go for a walk along King's Road before going back to the hotel. Sounds like a pretty good day. What would be on the menu at the at that hotel for lunch? Uh, oh, game, uh, game birds, you know, guinea fowl, that sort of stuff. Uh, really interesting food. Uh, an array of sort of old English pies, Um uh, local aisles. Uh, it's, it's sort of a, it's a, hardly a pub. It's, it's, a, it's a restaurant with a, with a bar, basically. Beautiful place. Well, I'm sure we haven't heard the last of John Burns. I'm sure you are going, your voice will be heard around the country in many different uh, spheres over the next few years. It's been a great pleasure catching up with you. Thank you, John. You know what I've got, you know what I've got in front of me at the moment? What have you got in front of you? The original Age Good Food Guide with restaurants in it that nearly all of them are closed. La Madrag, I've given a five stars to. Fanny's. Chomier, I've given five stars to. Uh, yeah, Fanny's is in here. 
cliche, which no longer exists. It's amazing. Do any of them still exist? No. It's amazing how the food uh, world has changed so much in such a short time. Maybe Distasio might have been in there somewhere. Yeah, I don't think it is, actually. Yep, it's all changed, and the restaurant scene's changed, but uh, you will never change. Great to talk to you, John. Thanks a lot. Thank you. John Burns, the latest to go on the record with me, Steve Price, in an ongoing podcast series for Talent Corp.